Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. I don't think I have to shovel today. Well, I mean, I didn't the day that I wrote this. The day I'm recording it, I have shoveled multiple times. <laughs> for those of you who are not Patreon patron, patrons and therefore able to listen to this the day I record. Um, do you remember that big winter storm that shut down Texas? Well, that's what's happening as I'm writing this. Only I live in Michigan, so I live in a state that's prepared for this sort of weather, even though it still gets old. Uh, today, we will finish reading the Greek tragedies in a somewhat fitting manner. Um, our final play from Euripides is Iphigenia at Aulis, or Iphigenia in Aulis, depending on your translation. I'm working from Paul Roche's translation, which shouldn't be too big of a surprise because most of the Euripides that I own is his translation. And it's a fitting last play to cover because so much of the literature that we have from ancient Greece is fragmentary, um, which is why we only have plays from three tragedians. Of course, there were more people writing tragedies, but no one else's plays survived the ages. Today's play isn't exactly fragmentary, but it is somewhat incomplete. Uh, Euripides died before he finished writing it, much like uh, much like Charles Dickens died before he finished writing The Mystery of Edwin Drood. We already saw uh, The Bacchae was produced posthumously, and Iphigenia at Aulis was produced the same year, which means that it too won first prize. It's not nearly as worthy of the prize as The Bacchae, but that might not be Euripides' fault. One, Euripides the Younger, who is either Euripides' son or nephew, finished writing the play and was responsible for its production. And it's the end where things kind of fall apart. Roche even marks a point in his script where everything becomes somewhat suspect. And yes, I'll let you know where that is when we get there. Um, now, I have two conflicting sources. One says that this is the only time Euripides won first prize, and another says that it's the fifth time he did. Um, I'm not sure if there's some confusion over first prize versus any prize, but what I said in the Bacchae episode about it being Euripides' only first prize may not be correct. Um, we know he won other awards. He just didn't win a lot of firsts. Um, as you can probably guess from the title, the Iphigenia at Aulis, right? Today's play is another part of the story of Agamemnon and the daughter that he sacrifices so that the Greek fleet can set sail for Troy. And you can probably guess that it takes place hmm, in Aulis. Shocking, I know. Aulis is the point of departure for the fleet, so the play is set before the Trojan War starts. And it features some very familiar characters. We have Agamemnon, Clytemnestra, Iphigenia, Menelaus, and Achilles. That's it. There's one old unnamed servant and a couple of messengers, but that's it. You already know everyone in the cast. Oh, and right, there is, of course, a chorus. Um, these are the women of, of Calchas, not to be confused with Colchis, uh, so the women of Calchas who have come to see the fleet off. Um, there is no god who appears for a deus ex machina. There's no character that we've never seen before as part of this myth. Um, and since you should be familiar with the myth, since we've read multiple versions of multiple aspects of it, I think that's background enough to get us started. We'll take a short break before going over the plot. 
play opens just before dawn in front of Agamemnon's tent. Agamemnon and his old servant, called an old retainer in Roche's translation, enter. Agamemnon has just finished writing a letter. The servant comments that Agamemnon has written and rewritten it, and Agamemnon explains, providing the prologue to the play. Leda had three daughters, Phoebe, Clytemnestra, and Helen. Agamemnon married Clytemnestra, but Helen, she was the most beautiful. Everyone wanted to marry her. But Tyndareus, her father, came up with a plan. All of Helen's suitors sealed a pledge to accept her choice of a husband and to defend that marriage to the death. She chose Menelaus, Agamemnon's brother. But then Paris pranced into Sparta looking all pretty and exotic, and he fell in love with Helen, and Helen fell in love with Paris, and they ran off together to his home in Troy. So now that pledge all the suitors had made has come into play. Everyone is assembled to go and avenge what's been done to Menelaus. Only the wind won't blow. The seer, Calchas, said the only way to get the wind to blow is to sacrifice Iphigenia, Agamemnon's oldest daughter, to Artemis. This was too much for Agamemnon. Screw the pledge. He wasn't going to kill his daughter because his sister-in-law fell in love with someone else. But Menelaus pleaded, so Agamemnon sent a letter to Clytemnestra. She's to bring Iphigenia to Aulis for a wedding. She's to be married to Achilles. But now Agamemnon feels bad about making up this ruse to get Iphigenia to come to Aulis. The letter that he's been writing and rewriting is to tell her not to come, to ignore the first letter. Agamemnon reads the letter to the old retainer and then gives him the letter to take to Clytemnestra. The retainer exits towards Argos, and Agamemnon exits into his tent. The chorus enters. They are very excited to see all of the ships and soldiers and describe everything that they see. It's, um, it's a much shorter version of the catalog of ships from the Iliad. Menelaus struts on um, along with his attendants and followed by the old retainer. Menelaus has the letter, and he is furious. How dare Agamemnon go back on his word? Agamemnon enters and rescues the old retainer, sending him back into the tent. And then the brothers fight. Or, you know, argue. I suppose the director could make the scene come to blows, and there is a point where the chorus suggests that they're about to, but that really is up to the director to decide just how physical the fight gets. Menelaus simply can't believe that Agamemnon thinks not killing his daughter is a better choice than helping his brother. And Agamemnon can't believe that Menelaus thinks his cheating wife is more important than sparing Iphigenia. Even the thought of killing his daughter is crime enough for Agamemnon. The chorus approves. Menelaus doesn't. He announces that he's going to find other people to help with the sacrifice, but before he is able to exit, a messenger enters announcing that Clytemnestra and Iphigenia and baby Orestes are about to arrive. The messenger thinks this is exciting news. Agamemnon, not so much. Having delivered his news, the messenger exits. Agamemnon monologues about how disastrous it is that his family has arrived. Menelaus finally decides that maybe, just maybe, killing Iphigenia isn't such a great plan and offers Agamemnon a truce. Agamemnon tells him that it's too late. Now that Iphigenia is an Aulis, he knows that the rest of the Greeks won't let her go back to Argos. The dejected brothers exit to their respective tents. The chorus sings about how the whole Trojan War started, with a particular focus on different types of love. Helen and Paris represent the wrong kind of love, so they deserve what they get. 
In a great hubbub, Clytemnestra, Iphigenia, and a nurse carrying baby Orestes enter along with a train of attendants. This is a Clytemnestra that we've never seen before. She is a doting mother, happily presenting her daughter to all of the people and, and doting on her son. The trauma hasn't happened yet. Agamemnon enters. He is sullen because, well, he's supposed to kill his daughter and all, but we get this picture of a relatively happy family. Iphigenia throws her arms around her dad, even if it's not exactly proper for a young woman who is about to be married. And Clytemnestra is open in her affection of her husband. It is simultaneously beautiful and heartbreaking. We, the audience, know where the story is going. Agamemnon tries to convince Clytemnestra to go home. He says that it's not proper for her to be at a military camp. He'll handle all of the wedding things. Even the things the mother of the bride is responsible for, she refuses. Yes, a military camp is not a suitable place for women, but it's even less suitable for men to be in charge of a wedding. She exits to start making the arrangements. Dejected, Agamemnon exits back into his tent. The chorus sings about how they imagine the Trojan War will go and hope for a happier future, even if that might not happen for generations. Uh, you and me both, ladies. Well, then, Achilles enters. It, you know how Brad Pitt played Achilles that one time when Brad Pitt was the hottest actor in Hollywood? Yeah, imagine that. Um, who's the current sexiest man alive? Google tells me it's Michael B. Jordan. So imagine Michael B. Jordan walking on stage. That's how the chorus reacts. Achilles is frustrated. He came here to fight, so he wants to fight. His ant men, I mean Myrmidons, are getting, well, antsy. They should either set sail or go home, but something other than just sit around in Aulis. Clytemnestra enters. She is thrilled to meet Achilles, and greets him as a woman only too happy to be mother-in-law to the most famous hero in Greece can. Achilles is confused. He has no clue what Clytemnestra is talking about and why she's being so forward with a strange man. Most improper behavior for a good Greek woman. Clytemnestra is mortified to discover that the wedding is a sham. Achilles is about to go into the tent and talk to Agamemnon when the old retainer enters. You see, he is really Clytemnestra's servant, having belonged to her family and stayed with her when she moved from her childhood household to her husband's household. His ultimate loyalty therefore lies with her, not Agamemnon. And he tells her everything about the planned sacrifice of Iphigenia, including how Agamemnon tried to take the pretense of the wedding back, but Menelaus prevented delivery of the second letter. Clytemnestra is furious and asks Achilles what he thinks. He declares that he's as enraged as she is. Clytemnestra throws herself at his feet and pleads with him to intercede to save her daughter. Achilles swears by his grandfather Nereus, the sea god, that he will not let Agamemnon get away with sullying his name with this ruse. The chorus approves. Here's the plan. Clytemnestra will beg Agamemnon to spare Iphigenia. If he refuses, then Achilles will help. But but she should do it properly. She shouldn't go raving like a maenad. And, I mean, we saw in the Bacchae what sort of trouble maenads can get up to. Clytemnestra agrees and exits into the tent. Achilles exits back towards the rest of the encampment. The chorus sings a song about Achilles. How his parents met and were married and how he'll be awesome in Troy. 
and then die. And then they sing about how Iphigenia is going to die too, and how that's going to be the downfall of them all. It's, it's cheery. Clytemnestra enters. She's still waiting for Agamemnon. He enters from another part of the camp and tells Clytemnestra to call for Iphigenia. She does one better and calls for Iphigenia to tuck baby Orestes into her mantle and then enter. Iphigenia and Orestes enter from the tent. Iphigenia is crying. She knows. We then get a very tense scene between mother and father over the fate of their daughter. Clytemnestra warns him against killing their daughter and then flitting off to war and then coming back home as though nothing ever happened, which... You know, he should have listened to her. She tells him that she's not going to forget if he does this thing. Iphigenia then gives her own tearful speech, reminding Agamemnon of all their happy father-daughter memories, that he's her favorite parent, and that she has nothing to do with Paris and Helen. And Orestes helps by crying, because he's a baby, and babies do that. And Agamemnon is moved, but he's between a rock and a hard place. If he kills Iphigenia, then he will forever be cursed by the murder. But if he doesn't, then the assembled army will kill him, his wife, and all of his children. And ultimately, he's a Greek. And he can't let a Trojan get away with stealing a good Greek man's wife. He gets the last word and exits. Clytemnestra shouts after him. Iphigenia is more measured and bemoans the fact that Paris ever came to Greece before saying that she must prepare herself for death. Achilles enters, followed by a mob. He tells Clytemnestra that the soldiers, including his own ant-men, I mean Myrmidons, are calling for Iphigenia's death. They've even threatened to kill him for attempting to intervene on her behalf. Clytemnestra and Achilles discuss what they can do next, but none of that matters. Iphigenia steps forward. If it means preventing further bloodshed, she's willing to die. Achilles is so touched that he says he wishes they really were getting married because she'd be an awesome wife. He promises to stay by her side from the time she reaches the altar until the moment of her death, and he exits. Clytemnestra weeps, and Iphigenia begs her not to mourn. Iphigenia hands Orestes back to his nurse. She tells Clytemnestra not to come. She doesn't need to see. She doesn't need to add to the drama. And she exits with her head held high. Clytemnestra takes Orestes back into the tent. The chorus sings a song of praise for Iphigenia's bravery and in honor of Artemis. And this is where the text and the plot fall apart. So that's probably all that Euripides wrote. And what follows was written by his nephew or son or possibly someone even later. Um, roughly what happens is that a messenger enters and calls for Clytemnestra who enters. The messenger explains what happened at the sacrifice. It was all going according to plan, but somehow at the last minute when the smoke cleared, Iphigenia had vanished and a deer had taken her place. Agamemnon enters and announces that this miracle means that Iphigenia has been taken somewhere safe and the play ends. It's, yeah, um, we'll talk about some of the problems with that after a short break. So, I did not study this play in college, and I can see why. We read the Bacchae and called that the last play by Euripides. The Bacchae is 
brilliant. Iphigenia at Aulis is fine. It has some wonderful moments. It's very humane in its treatment of the nuclear family that we see. Clytemnestra isn't the monster that we are accustomed to from later parts of this myth. Agamemnon is haunted by the thought of the sacrifice. And Iphigenia is, in many ways, a little girl. Um, you know how you can revert to who you were at an earlier point in your life? How you can like hang out with your old high school friends and find yourself using the slang and mannerisms that you used in high school um, when you'd never behave that way with friends you made in college or later? That's what we see of Iphigenia. She's daddy's little girl, even when she knows she's a grown woman. But it's that, oh, it's that ending. One of my sources does say that the original ending is the point at which Iphigenia exits, which makes sense. Uh, the problem with the whole deer thing is that it kind of breaks the rest of the myth. Clytemnestra kills Agamemnon because he killed Iphigenia. If Clytemnestra knows that Iphigenia was somehow rescued by Artemis and replaced with a deer at the last minute, then she knows that Iphigenia isn't dead and her motive completely disappears. And then it makes no sense that Orestes and Pilates are surprised to learn that Iphigenia is still alive and living among the Taurians. The ending that we have is terrible. Plus, it doesn't actually end. It just stops. I, it, now, you could say that there isn't really any good confirmation of the miracle of the deer because we only hear about it from the messenger and Agamemnon, but there's no reason for the messenger to lie. Agamemnon, sure, maybe he doesn't want to get, you know, Clytemnestra's wrath, but what the messenger has no, no reason to lie. So it does make much more sense for the play to end before his entrance. And when the chorus sings that last song, that the, that last song in praise of Iphigenia, it, it is a good Exodus song. Um, it, and what comes after is it, it, it is, it's just bad. <laughs> just, it's just a bad ending. Um, I do, however, have a very interesting tidbit to share about this play that really is not, it's not related to the text itself, and but it, to the play as a whole. In the 1550s, uh, one woman by the name of Joanna or Jane Lumley translated this play into English, making her the first female English playwright, effectively. Um, so despite the problems with this play simply not being Euripides' best, it, it has been beloved over, over the years, and it does have this special place in history um, with the, the Lumley translation being, you know, this mark, hallmark for, for women. Um, so, so what do you think of Iphigenia at Aulis? Um, I have several other, other discussion prompts not related to how bad the ending is, um, over, over at the blogs. Pop, pop over there and share your thoughts. The blog is at triumvirclio.school.blog. The URL and maybe a link are in the show notes. Find me on Patreon as Triumvirclio, and that URL is also in the show notes. On Wednesday, we will start a new course covering the Roman epics, because we finished the Greek ones. First up is De Rerum Natura, or On the Nature of Things. And we'll go over book one on Wednesday. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. 
And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.